and we are going to read Psalm 139 in its entirety. After we're done reading, uh, I'm going to say, this has been the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God, right? Because we're thankful, right? Think of the things that we can be thankful for today. Look at this little pool over here. This pool is people getting dunked to represent them being dead and coming to life. We are thankful for that. And we are so thankful that God reveals himself to us in this word, even in something like this, which is called an incommunicable attribute of God, something that's impossible to even comprehend, but it's still being presented to us here in text. And we're thankful, right? All right, let's get started. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you, with you, sorry. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous ways in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, please bless us this morning. Please communicate who you are to us. And please let us see that clearly. And please bless Mark as he, he teaches us about that. And God, thank you so much for the baptisms today. And thank you so much for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Yeah, good morning. Man, the energy in this room. Love it. Right on. 
I mean, Sean got like a half clap. That was amazing. Gosh, he's going to read. Right on. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad you're here. If you're new, I warmly welcome you. I'm Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. And, uh, and we are in this series about the attributes of God and who God is. And we do have a big morning, and we're going to talk about who God is, and then we're going to witness what God does in his power which changes people. That's what we're here for. We're not here just to talk and have conversation. We're here to meet with God and be changed forever. We're not here just to fill seats. God wants to meet with us this morning. And the God that wants to meet with us is this God we're talking about who has unto himself certain attributes and characteristics that only belongs to him. That's what we're doing. And that's what these six weeks have been about. And we're a little bit more than halfway through, which is amazing, talking about these six traits that belong to God alone. And this morning we get into this, this new attribute, omniscience, God's knowledge, God's knowing. You know who is omniscient? Google. It got, Google knows. I don't know if you know this or not, but Google's listening, right? Google's always listening. It's funny because, I, you know, I preach in and out, and so uh, every Sunday morning I'm preaching two services, and I I say somewhat of the same thing in each service and give the same illustrations. Sometimes I will say things, and my phone's up here, my iPad's up here, my watch is up here, the satellites are up here, everything's up here, right? Wi-Fi is up here, it's all up here. And, uh, and, and I, will, I will get ads sometimes about the things I say. Last week I gave an illustration about the Navy. I got ads to join the Navy, it's a true story, and we all know the phone is listening. We all know, and we, like, joke about it, and we tell other people. We're like, the other day, I was talking about litter, cat litter, and boom, it adds everywhere, right? We, we all know the phone is listening, and we don't care. I mean, we care, but we don't care because we like our phones, right? We like the convenience. We're like, they're listening, but, man, gosh, Angry Birds. You see what I'm saying? I need me some, I need me some Angry Birds. I don't care if they're listening. Yeah, how many, like... I, there was things I was looking at for Christmas as presents for Christy, and then all of a sudden it's like on my feed, right? And I'm like, she's going to see this. Google's going to ruin Christmas, you know? They're listening. Now, I, I did read an article recently about the extent at which Google knows. I don't know if you know this or not. But there was an article that talked about the amount of information that they're collecting, and uh, this one article said that, that Google has so much information Based on just what it digests of your online activity, it could create a digital sketch of your face. Not, I know. I, I, we're dunking phones this morning, right? We're throwing some phones in that water. I mean, literally, it, it could digitally reproduce your face. That's amazing to me. I mean, and when you go deeper, it's like it knows where you've been. It knows where you're going. It knows where you're going on vacation before you even know. It just knows. It knows how many, it knows about your children. It, I, one part of this article said Google could reproduce the, the tone of your voice based on the data that it is mining. And we're like, all right, woo, you know, crazy. I know, and I'm not like conspiracy. That's not, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but that's the amount of data. Google is probably the most omniscient thing on our planet it knows and here's the thing it's not so much that google knows the question is is what is google going to do with it right that's that's our issue the issue is 
what, what is all of our information going to, it's going to make them some money at our expense for sure. But then where's, where's all that being pulled and what's it going to be used for and how do we know it'll be used for good and will it be used for good? And, and this is the same kind of wrestle, right? We know God's listening. I mean, we kind of intrinsically know it. God's listening. God is seeing. God is present. God is all-knowing. The question is, what's he going to do with that knowledge? That's really, and what kind of character does God have in his omniscience? We don't necessarily trust Google. We can trust God. And that's, well, that's why we're looking at what is this all-knowingness of God? What is it like? And how is God relating to us through it? And how do we worship an all-knowing God? And that brings us into Psalm 139. But let, let's just build a baseline. And this is one of those attributes that we got we to define some things and then build from there so we understand why, one, why Psalm 139 is so important as we're in relationship with an all-knowing God, which is somewhat scary because God knows everything about us and we, we know very little about him. Even if you knew everything the Bible says about God, that is just a dot. It is not, he's infinite. So even that dot surely gets swallowed up in his infinite nature. And yet he knows everything. We're very finite and he is very infinite. And so what we know about God is very small, even if we were to memorize everything. And many of us, we're in relationship with God. We don't spend a lot of time getting to know. We, we want to know things that are beyond the things that he's already revealed to us. We're not even spending time here getting to know this God. We kind of want other revelation. And so what does it look like to be in relationship with this God? What is God all-knowing? Who is God all-knowing? What does that even mean? And there's, there's a, a baseline definition of God's all-knowingness or God's omniscience. Um, God's omniscience, God's all-knowing. And, and I'm going to kind of tweak some of that definition and put in some words that I think are a little more clear and helpful along the way. But this, this is essentially the definition that theologians uh, talking about who God is is kind of all landed on. And, um, and so this, this would be it. God's omniscience is a doctrine that states this. God fully knows himself, every possibility, and every actuality immediately and simultaneously. That is the definition of the all-knowing God. 1 John 3.10 or 3.20 just plainly tells us God knows everything. And what that phrase God knows everything means is this. And we'll see in our text this morning, but that God fully knows himself, that God knows every possibility and every actuality immediately and simultaneously. And let's just break this down for a couple minutes to understand. First is, he knows about himself. You heard the word communicable, incommunicable. This is, these are phrases regarding the nature of God. There is parts of God, remember, we're made in his image. There's, there's parts of God that he has shared with humanity. And there's parts that only belong to him, attributes in nature that only belongs to God himself. Those things that which belong to God himself, those are incommunicable uncommunicated, not communicated to us. But those things that belong in part in some ways um, is communicated to us. So like God is all powerful, we're not. That's incommunicable. God is all knowing and we're not. That's incommunicable. 
God is wise and has shared the ability for us to know wisdom that's communicated. You see how that's different. And, uh, but here you see how something belongs to only God. And that is God knows himself fully. We, we have to understand because there's a baseline for God's revelation because we need, to, what, we need to know whether or not God fully knows himself so that we can trust what God is revealing about himself. But God fully knows himself. First Corinthians tells us that the spirit of God comprehends the thoughts of God. See, this is where it's different than humanity. I only know a smart, like a small piece of me. Right? I've had enough psychology in my life to realize like there's an iceberg under here. Last, last night, I'm eating chocolate chips out of a bag while watching something on TV. I don't even really care for chocolate that much. And I'm eating chocolate chips. And it was like, why am I doing this? After a little while, I'm like, I don't even like this. I'm just eating. Why? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Full. I don't fully know myself. I'm willing to eat something I don't really enjoy. I don't know. I like being round. You know, I don't, I don't know. Pears a shape. I don't know. So, so anyway, I don't know myself, but God knows himself fully. Why do I do the things I do? Don't know. We're told in the scriptures, I do the things I don't want to do. Why? I don't even know. Because I have a, the, the heart is sick. The heart is wicked, Jeremiah tells us, right? Our motives are unclear. We don't always know why we're doing the things we're doing or why we're saying the things we're saying or why we're behaving the way we're behaving. We don't know. But what, what we know is God knows himself fully, which gives us a great trust in God's revelation because it's not like he's making decisions outside of some lack of knowledge of himself. So first and foremost, God knows about himself. Secondly is God knows every possibility and actuality. Now, we know God knows everything that does exist. That's, we, we can get there a little bit quicker. But what about every possibility? Now, this is really important in terms of God's omniscience. Because what, what it tells us that God knows every possibility is that he can simultaneously understand what every road would lead to. Why is that, why is that important? There's a, there's a theology called the best possible world. It's understanding God's omniscience through creation and how we relate to him. And the best possible world just says this. God knew all the possible worlds. And because God is perfect in his knowledge and his application of knowledge and all of his other parts of his nature, which are simultaneously perfect, it means that God could only choose the best of all possible decisions, right? So if you have the best possible world out of all possible worlds and you have the best perfect knowledge out of everything that you could know, then it means that God would only choose the best possible world. Why is that important? It's because this is the world we live in. And how many times have you been in this world and been like, something's wrong? Is this really the best possible world? Is this really the best possible life? Is this the really the best possible existence? Couldn't, couldn't God have done it another way? His omniscience tells us that God knows every possibility. And in his perfection, he wouldn't choose a secondary good. You hear that? God wouldn't choose a secondary good. He would only choose a primary good, a first good. Which means if this is the world exists, it exists because he knows every other possible world. And therefore, this is the best world. Ah, okay, you're not impressed. All right. I think 
the omniscience of God is essential. Because when we look at our lives, we're like, why does it have to look like this? It's because God and his all-knowing has designed a world that looks like this. And we can trust that there was not another better world. He knows every possibility. It invites us to trust him. And listen, here's John Piper explaining a piece of this. Listen to how he says it. God governs the course of history so that in the long run, his glory will be more fully displayed and his people more fully satisfied than you would have been, would have been the case in any other world. You see, because we look at the world and we're like, I'm, I'm looking at it to accomplish one thing. But God in his omniscience is looking at every possibility and he's saying, this is the world that will best display who I am to you and to the world, but also the best possible world that will bring a satisfaction to us ultimately, which means, therefore, look at your life and your body and your family and what's around you. God is making a trillion different decisions on your behalf. And are they secondary goods or are they first goods? Is your life and, and how it began and all that wouldn't be the way that you designed it, but praise be to God, you're not God. And you're not omniscient and you're not all-knowing and that you don't know every possibility. You don't know every road that goes from your decision-making, but God does. Invites us into trust. Thirdly is this phrase, immediately and simultaneously. That God knows everything about himself, every possibility, every actuality, immediately and simultaneously. This tells us two things. One, it it refers to the idea that God's omniscience is totally complete. He doesn't learn anything. Now, that's really significant because there's there's this thing, um, and it shows up in various ways, but it's called open theism. And And the idea of it is that God is open to what the future could be because he doesn't know it yet. And so then God is not so much like a composer composing the notes of the great symphony of our world, the best possible world. He's more like, a, 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 like, a, uh, like an orchestra leader, a conductor. He's kind of conducting the notes as it's being played. Well, what is it? Does God know the future or doesn't he? Is he open or is it closed knowledge? Yeah, do, we have, do we believe in an open theism? Or is God's knowledge absolutely complete about the future? And, and the Bible asserts, and we'll see in Psalm 139, that God's knowledge is complete and that the, he doesn't learn anything. And we often use this phrase like in prayer, and I think it's a really powerful phrase, God is never surprised by your life. We're often surprised. We're taken back. We've been in a lot of surprise as a family, as you know, medically. Like, everything's kind of just kind of fallen off real quick since we've moved here. And it's like, where, why did all this happen? Where is Christy's health stuff come from? Never have been there before. What's going on? It didn't surprise God. It, made, it makes total sense, and it's the best possible world. But he doesn't learn. And what's great about that is he's not, he's not reacting to humanity. He's not waiting for you to do something so he can do something. And he's also not waiting to accomplish his will and purpose until you do the right things. Yeah, praise God for that. The second thing that it tells us immediately and simultaneously is God doesn't remember. He only knows. God is not recalling. He knows everything simultaneously and equally and all the time. Total knowledge. Listen to how Tozer wrote this. 
God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and every spirit, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desire, every unuttered secret, all thrones, all dominions, all personalities, all things visible, invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Woo, that'll preach. I'm getting that tattooed to me. <laughs> it's a big list. And here's what's great is when we come to God in prayer, we're not like, I hope he can recall the situation. I hope he can get the facts straight. Right? And don't we, we laugh, but we kind of struggle with that. We're like, is God going to understand where I'm coming from? Is he going to take somebody else's side? Mm. He's not trying to remember. He knows. Now, 139 is about the implications of those realities and how we see them flushed out in relationship with people and an all-knowing God. And that gets us into 139. And, and we're going to walk through this, uh, this text. And it starts in verse 1, just says, O Lord. And you, you might see that the letters are all capital. We've talked about this week, almost every week now, that this is the relational covenant name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I is who I is. I'm, I'm present, right? So he's talking about his nature, which is forever present. It's, it's right here and right now. Not a God that was or a God that's going to, but a God that is. And it's his covenantal relational name that David is calling out to. And, uh, and David gives us this understanding of what is it like to relate to God. And he starts with this, O Lord. Relational covenantal name of God. You've searched me and you've known me. This word searched is a powerful word in the Hebrew. It's, it's used some 27 times in the Old Testament to mean to explore or to search out. It's used nine times in the Old Testament for the phrase found out, which is, which is God knows you fully. Just let that sink in. There is not a crevice, a corner, a part, or a, a compartment of your life that God doesn't know fully. He has found you out. In fact, the phrase searches is it's in the completed tense. It's in the perfect tense. It's, it means it's completely done. It means that there's nothing more for God to know about. He knows it all. It, there, there's no part of your life in which you haven't been found out. Listen to Ezekiel 5.27. You may have heard this. It, it comes up in movies. Uh, it's a great Western quote, you know, from a cowboy, but it's actually from the Bible. You've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. You know. You've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. Why? Because God knows you. He's weighed you. He's searched you. He has found you out. Here's how David starts out. God, you are omniscient. You have searched me. You've been in every part. You know every part. The second is you known me. So he's found you out, and that's 
completed. That means it's a done deal. He, he knows everything. There's nothing more that he's going to find out about you. You're going to find out a lot about yourself and about him, but he knows everything about you. But then the second word known in the English comes across in the past tense, but it's actually in what's called the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense is more like an ing word. It, it means there's no ending to it. Where searched is found out. It's a done deal. But known here, here's what David is saying. David says, you have searched me. You have found me out. You have looked in every crevice and you are knowing me. Not great. That's this relational piece of the knowledge of God. God just continually knows you. It would sound something like every moment of your existence, every thought, action, intention, spoken and unspoken, seen or unseen, known or unknown is fully known by God. And he didn't get your permission. You didn't sign, you know, you didn't like click of cookies. You know, God's like, by the way, I use cookies. Okay, except, you know, like it didn't go like that. God didn't ask you. He doesn't care. He knows you. He he made you. He is the the beginning of us. There's no privacy with God. And we'll get into more detail. But look at in verse 2. He's in your living room. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know when I'm on the lazy boy. You know, being lazy. You know it. You know when I get up, when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. You're in my head. Verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down. You know where I'm going, the direction of my life, my goals and plans. And then you're also in my bedroom where I'm lying down. God is in your bedroom, yo. Think about that. There's a verse. He searched your path and he knows you're lying down. He's acquainted with all of your ways. He, He knows the things that make you you. You know, when you're like, man, I'm unique. God knows those unique things about you. The way, the way you talk, man, we just talked about how Google could replicate the tone of your voice. God knows even more than the tone of your voice, but not to replicate you, but because you're unique and he knows you. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. See, God's not waiting for you to say something. He already knows what is going to be said. He already knows what you're going to say to somebody else. He already knows the prayer before it's prayed. Which brings us all into a kind of question, what what are the points of all of these? And we'll, we'll answer that. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So 139 has these two attributes that are always working at the same time, which is how the nature of God works. And that is the presence of God and the knowledge of God. And and David's pointing us to both. But the point of this presence of God in Psalm 139 is for the knowledge of God. That the presence of God in Psalm 139 is so that we're really affirmed that God has walked with us and knows us. And that that the point of this is the knowledge of God. And that the presence of God is the knowledge of God come close. But the point of it is God is on all sides. His knowledge is on all sides. His presence and his knowledge go hand in hand. How does he know you? Because he's before you. He's after you. He's right and he's left and he's in front of you. He's hemmed you in. You are 
you are totally fenced in by the knowledge of God. There's, there's nowhere you're going to go to juke God out of knowing you. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Whatever the clothes we wear, hoping God sees these clothes and has a particular view of me, we're told that his eyes see beyond that. From our living room to our mind, from our bedroom to our goals and motivations, to the, to the path I'm walking, to the words that I will be saying, I am hemmed in by the knowledge of omniscient God. Mm. And he's knowing you. Not known you and moved on. He is knowing you. Walking with us in that knowledge, even though we're naked and exposed. That's amazing. Now, David in some ways, in Psalms, and Psalms is very experiential in some ways. David is farther along in, in, as he's walked with God and he's made mistakes. And we've, if you go through Psalm, you see all kinds of ways in which David has been developing as a, as a, as a follower of God, as a covenant member of the people of God, as a king, all these things, being anointed by God and called by God. And he's made all kinds of errors. And I believe 139 is an expression of, of his experiences that have all kind of culminated with this reality and that if we could get to this reality sooner than him, it would really help us. So we're totally, God knows every part of us. Now, what is our reaction to the knowledge of God? There's two that I believe are in the text. The first one is, is one of our reactions to the knowledge of God is that we raise up and we believe that our knowledge is greater than his knowledge. One reaction to the knowledge of God is just to disbelieve that God's knowledge is actually full and complete. And to believe that my knowledge is better. To disbelieve that God's knowledge and the best possible world exists. And that he's created the best possible world. But in fact what I want to do is I want my knowledge to rise up. Because I really think that I could create a better world. And a better possibility. And a better actuality. Look at in verse 6. So he just says, God, I'm, I'm hemmed in. You know me totally. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, I think it took a long time for David to get to that point, right? Because when he was looking at Bathsheba bathing on the roof, he did not think that God's way was a better knowledge, did he? He thought his way was a better knowledge. When he was supposed to be out at war, with the nation representing God at the front lines. He was at home enjoying the comforts of being a king instead of being out representing God amongst the nations. He thought his knowledge was better than God's knowledge. Now at Psalm 139, he's being chased by his family. He's threatened to lose his throne. His legacy is crumbling around him. He's on the run. He's hiding all of these things that have come from his own decision-making, and now this, this much forward, where is he coming from? God, you know everything, verse 6, and I've come to the realization that this knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It's taken me a while to experience that your knowledge is actually better than mine. It's actually higher. And you notice what he's saying here? Such knowledge is too wonderful. What's the knowledge he's referring to? The words of my mouth, the discernments of my heart, where I rise, where I sit, where I lie, all of these things. It's too much for me. But he didn't always think that, did he? And that's one, one way in which we respond to the omniscience of God is we just go, you're not all-knowing. I am. I know what's better for me. I know it'll make me happier. I know it will make me more satisfied. I know that there's a better possible world. We know less about God than we know about the oceans of our planet. And we only know like 5% of the oceans of our planet. And yet in our pride, we steal the omniscience of God for ourselves. And we go, I know better. Wasn't that the great temptation in the garden? Did God really say? Did he really mean it? Does he really know what good and evil is? Doesn't he just not want you to be knowledgeable like him? We wrestle against the knowledge of God. Now, that's one way, and maybe we walk through that, and maybe you're in a season of that right now where you're just you're trying to make your own way, and you believe that you have what it takes to understand the depths of the world or to understand the depths of your own soul, and you're, you're at a place you're unwilling to, to release that and go, God, your knowledge is so too wonderful for me. I can't comprehend these things. It's too high. What a great thing this morning to come to a place where we go, I can't, I can't outthink you. It's a, a place of repentance this morning. God, your knowledge is far too great. I can't, I, I've tried to be omniscient over my own life and I've made a mess. And I need to surrender to your omniscience. Now that's one way. We, we're, we're prideful. We think that we know enough and we know more and we know better. But the second experience of David here in regards to the omniscience of God is, is probably more universal. Look at in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Mm. This is what I'm talking about, the, the, the connection between the presence of God and the knowledge of God. It is about presence, and we go to the scripture a lot to talk about, which will, which will be next week, the omnipresence of God, the everywhere presence of God, God everywhere, and the attribute of his, of his presence. But this is... This is about his presence, but his presence in relationship to his knowledge because it starts with, where could I go to flee from you? But it ends with, surely you know. Surely you can see through the darkness. See, it doesn't go, surely you will be present in the darkness. Surely you will see through it. It's not dark to you. You know, that's the whole point. So it's his presence really pointing to his knowledge. And, and this also points to what David has done and is doing, and that is hiding. And I think he's, he comes to a place later in his life where he realizes, oh, man, I have tried to run from God. I know the stories. If I go to the ocean like Jonah, God will still be there. His knowledge will find me. And wasn't that the, really the story of Jonah? It's not so much 
that God's presence was in the water. It's that God knew his sin. And knew how to take care of it. So he has this relationship, this knowledge that I've tried to hide from God. Where shall I flee from your presence? Which is, I think, a rhetorical question. Because I've tried, and no matter how much I try to flee from your presence, I can't get away. And if I make my bed in Sheol, if I literally try to leave creation and go to the underworld, kind of this picture of hell, even there, even there you know about me. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the, in the parts of the sea, your hand will lead me, your right hand shall hold. And then this idea of darkness shall cover me, light about me. So in verse 11, he says, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, which is him begging. Do you see what that phrase is? How does the light become, how, how does the light become dark? He, he's begging for darkness. He's begging to hide from God. The light about me be night. Please be night. To block God's eyes. And then we know that his knowledge extends that even in darkness, it's not dark enough. What is this? The Bible has one story that's always repeating. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And what what is Psalm 139? What is David experiencing? He's experiencing the garden all over again. If you put yourself back in the garden, you have Adam and Eve and the knowledge of God. The best possible world, a garden. The best possible world, a tree in the garden. The tree of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil, by the way. Knowing. Knowledge. Omniscience. And God set a world in motion and said, you can eat of any uh, any tree, but not this tree. This is the best possible world. And every tree is good for you, but don't become omniscient and believe that this tree is better for you. And then what did they do? They ate. They took the knowledge of God, and they took it upon themselves. And first, they thought they had enough ability to have the wonderful knowledge of God for their life, only to find it collapse around them. And then they discovered they're naked. They discovered that they can see themselves as God sees them, uncovered. And then what did they do? They tried to flee from God, didn't they? They hid. They hid from one another. They put on fig leaves. And then they tried to hide from God in the bushes. They tried to make the light dark. And what happens? God comes walking through the garden, calling them by name. Where are you? Where are you? Giving them an invitation in, in order to Receive, to, to, to trust that God already knows. He knew. Who told you you were naked? Who, he, he invites them. But the whole point of it is they become so full of shame when they begin to realize how much God knows about them. And the issue for us is not so much that God knows us. The issue is the shame we feel because God knows us. And we dislike the idea of God knowing us because we want to cover ourselves up. Because we're full of shame and the shame that it brings upon me to be naked and exposed before God. Maybe one of the best illustrations of this has been in my own marriage. 20 years married. 
And maybe the, the number one, maybe the number one thing that has been a constant struggle for me in being a spiritual leader in the house and loving Christy well has been being a man and a husband who prays with his wife. And what has made it the hardest in 20 years is because I could, I could pray with anybody, but it's hard to pray with the person who knows me the most. It is hard to be intimate when Christy sees my sin and my failure. I mean, I know you're all impressed. I'm Pastor Mark throwing it down. She's not impressed. I go home, she's like, eh. It hurts, but it's a good thing. But it makes it hard to lead spiritually because I feel shame. Because when I want to pray there, I'm like, she knows me. She, she's going to see this for what it is, hollow and shallow and hypocritical. Now, she would never. We've had these conversations for years. She would never. She's like, I want you to pray. It's sexy to pray. You know, that kind of. But I have so much shame. And isn't that what it's like to be with the Lord, to walk with Jesus? We're like, man, I, I really want to walk with the Lord, but he, he really knows me. He's going to see my hypocrisy. He's going to see me for what I really am. He's going to know I'm faking worship on Sunday morning. He's going to know I'm raising my hands just because it's a thing to do. Or I'm clapping just because I saw on Instagram the other day that I'm supposed to. And so, <laughs> God totally knows it's fake and false. And what am I? And so then we're like, I, I want to run from him. I want to hide from him. And so then I do these religious things in order to create darkness that maybe God won't see through. Because maybe he'll see me for the clothes I'm wearing, but not for the nakedness that I am. And so we run in shame. And that's what David has experienced for a long time. But then the story is the, this is just the repetitive story in David's life. It's the repetitive story in our life of the garden of Adam and Eve all over again. Every day is a return to that garden for us and trying to exert our will and our knowledge and then hide from God and present ourselves in a way in which he'll love us. And, but then here's the thing. Here's what David does. And I love it is that David brings us to this place of restoration. And what's the restoration here when we're in the knowledge of God, when we're hiding and full of shame? What is the restoration? It goes to before we were born. He takes us to the foreknowledge of God. This is powerful. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You know what's powerful? Is the, is the lesson, is the reality that David has learned that if you... The, the restoration of God goes back to what does God really know about me? That being restored to God is not about avoiding his knowledge. It's about going into his knowledge, deeper into his omniscience. And here he goes, but here's my hope. My hope is not that 
I've lived in such a way or choose in such a way to hide myself from you. My hope is to go back to the very first thoughts you had about me. Do you see how tender this God that sees David is? You knitted my inward parts. You, I'm wonderfully made. Now, think about the omniscience of God here. God's like, I'm putting you together. And I'm not just throwing pieces. I'm not just going to the junkyard and, and, and duct taping it together. I'm putting you together, and I know you're going to sin. This arm I'm giving you, I know you're going to use it against someone, and you're going to shake it at me, but I'm putting it together. And I'm giving you this mind, even though I know you're going to use this mind to think that you're more smart, you have more knowledge than me, but I love this mind. And I'm going to give you this mouth, even though I know you're going to use this mouth to hurt others, to slay others, and even to slay me in your misunderstanded judgment, but I'm going to give you this mouth. And you see, where does David do? David takes him to his foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge. And that is what? To be known by God is to be loved by God. And he's loved by God. And, and, and this is what the gospel looks like. The gospel gets us away from trying to put on the right thing so that God will see me in a certain light. It goes back to the very beginning and to the very love of God in spite of what God knew we would become. And this is the story of the Bible, that God loves you knowing you are going to rebel, knowing you are going to hate, knowing you are going to hide, knowing you are going to exalt your own knowledge, and God loved you because he knows you, and the knowledge of God is the love of God. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I was omniscient about you before you were born, and I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You were going to be a joke, but I appointed you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, if you want to see it, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the promise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which we've been blessed in the Beloved. What is the love there? The love there is the knowledge that he has foreloved you. That's what foreknowledge means. It doesn't mean that God in his open theism looked across the corridors of time and saw whether or not you would believe in him. No, no, he set his affection upon you in his omniscience, knowing you would rise up and rebel and hide from him. Listen to Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, omniscient, over, but his knowledge is love. From those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Translation, those whom God foreloved, knowing them completely, he called them to himself because he loved them. Not because of anything that they bring. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. ha if you love God, it's because God is omnisciently knowing you. And his knowledge is love. Because he knows you, he loves you. 
in light of everything he knew that we would fail out spiritually. He loved us. Ah, praise be to God. Now, what do we, how, how do we, what do we do with the omniscience of God? Close in five quick things out of this text. How do you worship an omniscient God? Look at what it starts out in verse 17. So in light of that, God knows all things. We try to hide from God. But then in order to be restored to God, I go back to the love of God that he had, the choosing of God that he chose me in light of everything that he knew about me. There's the hope. So then how does David respond? Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Here, the first thing is to recognize that the omniscience of God, the knowledge of God is infinitely valuable. That means we place upon the knowledge of God, the mind of God, the omniscience of God, and we go, whatever God thinks is precious, whatever God thinks is good, whatever God thinks is valuable, and I'm going to hold that up. I'm going to treasure that. I'm going to put that on the mantle of my heart so that the whole world can see because this knowledge is precious. This knowledge is nothing. This is just me. But the knowledge of God is precious, David says, infinitely valuable. Does the knowledge of God ever blow us away? And here's the thing. The knowledge of God is not something abstract out there that we're just waiting for God to give us in our heart. The knowledge of God is this Bible. Consider that the omniscient God revealed his knowledge to us. David's like, the knowledge of God is infinitely valuable. Whatever God knows and that knowledge that God has shared with us, I love it. I love it so much. And so quickly we trade God's thoughts in for something cheap. Jeremiah says, you've hewed out brackish cisterns of nasty water and you drink from it. Instead of the knowledge of God, the water of God. Infinitely valuable. This is why Isaiah 55 says, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, which leads me to worship and go, God, I want those thoughts. I love those thoughts. Whatever you think, I want it. Secondly, David prays, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Not, not, not a verse that we would probably go to often. But let's get some things clear. God does hate some things. Hate is the byproduct of loving. He hates pride, rebellion, sin, idolatry. He hates those things in us. And here David is going, do I not love what you love? Do I not hate what you hate? Am I not aligned with you in heart? This is after a long time of walking with God and walking away from God and returning to the grace of God. Have I not aligned myself with your heart? So how, how do we worship an omniscient God? The second thing is to align our knowledge with God and then pray accordingly. And isn't that what he does? He goes, God, I love the things you love. I, I loathe the things that you hate. 
I'm walking with you. I'm adopting and aligning my heart with your heart. And then he prays, would you slay the wicked, O God? Would you take care of the enemies that are against you and me, these men of blood? And, and he releases it into God's hands. He doesn't say, do this. He's praying, oh God, would you not do this? And that's what it looks like for us to be in relationship with God, to pray in the name of Christ, is to align our heart and our will with the heart and the will of God and then pray accordingly and let God's knowledge and his understanding of what to do fall where it falls. Because his omniscience means he knows best. He knows every possibility and every actuality. Therefore, not only because he knows every possibility and actuality, we can trust that the things that God hates are things worthwhile to hate and the things worthwhile to love. Thirdly, I love this. Look what he says, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You know what's crazy about that prayer is God already knows. He's already said, God's found me out. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me. That's how he starts this whole thing. So what's the point now? The point now is a place of surrender to invite God to know what God already knows. It's a point of relationship now. It's not just a matter of fact that God knows my life. It's that I want to walk in the knowledge of God and say, God, I welcome your knowledge in my life. I welcome your omniscience. I welcome your searching. I welcome your knowing my heart, right? It's like when, as a parent, sometimes... Sometimes you're like looking at your kid, you're like, you know what's going on. They got cookies all over their face. They broke into the pantry. You know, they're hiding it behind their back. And they're like, I didn't get anything, you know? And you're like, I know you did. I'm not a dummy. Kids think parents are so dumb, right? I'm not dumb. I know it, but what I'm looking for in that moment is the same thing God was looking for in the garden as he was walking, calling Adam and Eve. Will you invite me in? Will you allow me to know you? This is relational knowing now. It's one thing to know facts about you. It's another thing to, to really walk with you and know you. And this is going, God, I'm, I'm inviting you to know me because you already do. Fourthly, it goes on. Try me and know my thoughts. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Now he's calling out how to walk in the, in the omniscience of God is that we would allow the knowledge of God to expose us. And this phrase, grievous way, is the phrase for anti-shalom, non-shalom. Shalom was, is not, it's a, a way of greeting. It's a way of departing for Hebrew people. But it's more like maybe what we would call this, like centering. It's shalom is... Peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, welfare, and tranquility. God, will you test my peace? Will you see if inside me, this heart, there is any lack of harmony with you, creation, others? Will you find the, the, the places where I'm not whole and where the goodness of your love is not complete in me? God's knowledge begins to expose where our non-shalom is. And the peace of God is where, the, is, is where the knowledge of God is. And the lack of peace in our lives is where the lack of the knowledge of God is. Look at in Philippians 4, 5 through 7. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Do you see the connection to knowledge? Will guard your hearts and your minds. Your minds in Christ Jesus. What are you, you're praying not just for this ethereal, emotional thing to happen. You're praying that the knowledge of God will transform my anxiety that surpasses anything my mind can create to bring shalom in a place where there's no shalom in my life. And lastly, he says this, and lead me in the way of everlasting. This word everlasting is a beautiful word because it it probably more closely translates the ancient way. Take me back to the very beginning of all things. That God had created humanity to be in a place of constant love and relationship with God and in connection with creation and a stewardship and a ruling over all things alongside God to walk with God in the garden. This is the ancient way. And that the omniscience of God invites us this morning to say, God knows the way to eternity. So that when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is not adding to a plurality of religious sayings in his knowledge of every possible reality and every actuality, he is saying Jesus is the only way. And so then therefore to worship the omniscience of God is to trust in the only way that God has provided into relationship with him and into eternity and life after this life, which is Jesus and only Jesus. And why do we trust in Jesus this morning? Because God is all-knowing. I started with 1 John 3.20. I'll end with 1 John 3.20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. That the knowledge of God keeps us from being condemned and instead invites us to be saved. Lord Jesus, thanks God for this great attribute and for this morning and for your grace and for your goodness and what we're about to participate in, both in communion and baptism as a reality of this is the way in which you have, you have brought before us. And this morning, some of us need to surrender. You already know us, and so you're inviting us to come out of hiding this morning and be saved, to walk on a road that leads to eternity, not on a road that leads to more heartbreak and hurt and sin and rebellion and, and the elevation of our own knowledge. We pray, God, that you will lead us in the ancient way. In your name, amen.